0: This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, April 30th, 2017 at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Genesis chapter 49, beginning verse 1, says, Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel your father." Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company." For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I'll divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub from the prey, my son, you have gone up. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good. The land was pleasant. And so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant of forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels, so that his rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad. He shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the walls. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his... Bo remained unmoved, and his arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills, may they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who has set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey, and in an evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. And then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, In the cave that is the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah's wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people." This is God's Word. And I bet it's a word that you would skip over if you are reading it on your own. Because it's not super exciting. But it is important that since God put it there for us to dig into it, and I believe there's much for us to learn here. The story goes that after meeting with Joseph and his grandsons privately, he calls the eleven other sons of his to his bedside where he is going to really breathe his last breaths. And in that, he will um, proclaim judgment and prophecy. He will speak to each of his sons personally, and he will really, like a dad, reveal the reflections of what he thinks about their past character, and then he will foretell what he expects their future prosperity will be. And He's not just speaking as a father. He is speaking as a father with opinions about his sons. But he's also, because it's a patriarchal blessing, he is, as God's chosen servant, speaking for the Father. And he's revealing it, just not his expectations, but reality, what is going to come to pass. And so, these boys are together. They're called together and they couldn't be any more different than one another. They are very diverse and they're expected to live separate from Egypt, even as they live in the nation of Egypt, but not to be separated from each other. They'll not just have their own families to worry about. And you've seen that for the most part, many of them have acted pretty selfishly up to this point, thinking about their own families families they're going to have their own families they will lead their own families but they'll also be part of this other thing this family of families that has its own purpose and its own mission of which their agendas and their personal missions fit within this family of families is going to be called and Jacob says this at the end the 12 tribes of Israel it's the first time in scripture where this description is used and it will be used often as you talk about the 12 tribes of Israel. And this is how the land will eventually, when they return over 400 years from now, back to Canaan, and it will be dispersed. If you read the end of Joshua, it's allotted. Everyone gets their little chunk of land, and the brothers' names are listed on there. represents each of the brothers that are in this blessing. And if you know this history, you understand, um, or if you read history, How these brothers fared up until this point and beyond. The truth is, Genesis 49 marks a shift a little bit in the redemptive story of God. God is making, has made promises to people. He has spoken to Adam and He has spoken to Noah and He's spoken to Abraham and then to Isaac and to Jacob. And He's made these promises that that were personal in nature, but it certainly foretold something much larger beyond them about their family and now we're seeing that God is not just going to be the God of a person but the God of a people the God of yes Abraham and Isaac and Jacob but the God of Israel he never created us with the intention of us having individualized separated spirituality from one another where everyone has their personal relationship with God, though certainly in a sense we have those things, He intended for this community to exist. For the people of God to exist. A gathering of God's people. The church. A group of worshipers. So they have this shared identity. But they also have very different character. Very different life circumstances. Very different callings. And... Jacob says at the end, or the text says at the end, that Jacob blesses each with the blessing suitable to him. Each with the blessing suitable to him. There's some uniqueness within this one body. These aren't just merely blessings. They're prophetic blessings. Reflections of what their character produces. Of of what their circumstances produced. What the calling of God is going to make of them. In other words, what you see is that every person within this group and and every problem that they experience all work in conjunction with God's purposes. Together. So the twelve tribes of Israel, like the twelve disciples of Jesus, like the twelve individuals or couples that started Restoration Road Church were arranged and are arranged by God for His purposes and His glory. And very different people very unique people they're an eclectic group we are an eclectic group of sinners like if you read the stories of these guys these are not like rock star christians these guys are messed up and if you read the disciples like you'd really spend time like what were these guys like i mean they're just messed up and by messed up i mean normal Right? They're not special. They're not unique. They they don't understand things. They ask silly questions. They do dumb things. And yet, this is the group that God brings together and goes, every single one of these pieces fits together for me to bring about my glory because that's what it's all about. So if you hear nothing through this sermon because it will be a little different, confusing, listen to this and, and remember this. That every strength you might have, every weakness you or someone you know might experience or exemplify or manifest, every failure, every success, every opportunity, every wasted opportunity, every blessing, every hardship, every circumstance is ordained to bring about the glory of God through the display of His justice, display of His patience, display of of His mercy, display of His grace, display of His holiness, or display of His power to make holy. It's all about the glory of God. And we see that most clearly in this blessing. We see this blessing unfold in Genesis 49 with these 12 dudes. And I want us to read it less instructively, like, okay, well, this is how I should act as opposed to reading it perhaps much more worshipful, where we see this is what God does. This is who God is. This is who God uses for His glory. And He's much bigger than I could imagine. If He can use this kind of person and this kind of person and this kind of situation, God is much bigger than I can comprehend. I can't figure Him out. And that's a good thing. As we consider these 12 boys, I want to consider... Different kinds of people God uses to bring him glory, and some might surprise you. The first one is Reuben. And Reuben was a failure. Reuben Reuben was the one who was expected to lead, he was the firstborn. He was by culture and just by nature the the strong one, the mighty one, the blessed ones. Those are the firstborns. They're the ones who have the privilege. They're the ones who have every advantage. They're the ones who are expected to lead because of who they are. My first son will take over, will carry the name on in a special and unique way. We've talked about the firstborn in my home to the point where Fisher doesn't talk about it much anymore, but he would often talk about, "I get the blessing, right, Dad? I'm the firstborn. Like, that makes me better than the others." Jacob describes Reuben as the best of his might, the best of his strength. And yet Reuben was the one who sinned grievously against the family. Jacob records, and it's recorded elsewhere, just briefly, that Jacob I'm sorry, Reuben is the one who slept with. One of his own wives in his own bed. It was one of his servant wives, Bila. He defiled his father's bed. He sinned against the family, bringing dishonor in in an ugly way against the family. This is a man whose sin came from within and hurt the family in a unique way. And the consequence of his sin was the loss of blessing, as the firstborn for himself and blessing in the future for his family. The first would end up last. And historically, he would be part of the family, but his descendants would suffer from insignificance. No great people would come out of Reuben. Nothing fantastic would be known or come out of the tribe of Reuben. And it goes without saying, but I'll say it, that there are many leaders in the church, pastors, Christians, who have failed to lead because they fell into sin. Even sexual sin. The statistics are pretty shocking. But their failure, hear this, still glorifies God insofar as His holiness is upheld, and that is said that is wrong. His glory is upheld even when leaders fail that way, as much as His holiness is upheld. See, there's a time to show grace to leaders when they fail like this and when they screw up. But there's also a time, as Paul says in his letter to Timothy, to rebuke those leaders in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Rebuke in the presence of all. And you realize that all the brothers are there. Because he kind of shifts to third person at the end. And you can see he says, Speaking to him, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Talking to the brothers. Warning the brothers about the ugliness and the consequence of sin. Those who fail to lead and fall like this glorify God when their sin is used as an example for others. And that's what's happening here with Reuben. About the consequences and the horribleness of sin. But, he also talks about two other of his sons, his oldest sons, Simeon and Levi. He puts them together and talks about their sin. There are those whose sin is used an example, and I would argue that there are those whose sin is actually employed as a ministry by God. Brothers Levi and Simeon, blessed together, sin together, do great things together, do horrible things together. They are the worst influences on each other. Because of their sin, They have great loss. Simeon and Levi were known to be violent. Jacob talks about how vengeful they were. And what he is talking about is the story of their sister, Dinah, who was captivated by a prince. Some say she was raped. Some say she was promiscuous. But the reality is they slept together and shouldn't have and brought dishonor to the family. And the brothers got angry. Dad didn't seem to care, wasn't doing anything. And after they decided to take into their own hands, they looked at him and said, Would you have us, would you have them treat our sister like a prostitute? In their anger, what they had done was the victimizer had wanted to marry Dinah and came to him and said, What do I got to do to marry your sister? He said, That's fine, you can marry her. As long as all of your city becomes part of our family. In order to become part of our family, you guys got to get circumcised. All of you. This guy really must have wanted to marry Dinah. And that city must have really respected that leader. Because he went back home and said, alright city, come together. Everybody, hear the knives. Go for it. Right? Now I don't know about you, but I think I might move that day. But they... All were circumcised. And in their moment of woundedness, Simeon and Levi went into the city and slaughtered them all. Killed them all. Now their feelings of righteous anger were just that. They were righteous. They should be angry. But that bled into sin. And the level of violence and slaughter that they unleashed was wrong. So wrong the dad's like, I don't want, you stay away from me. I don't want my glory to be part of you. I don't want, you, I don't want to be connected with you. And you can imagine a father saying that, how, how hurtful that would be, but how serious that would be. He says, look, you guys aren't going to have an allotment. And if you look, that's true and not true. What you see is, um, if it comes up, which it may not, Well, there's a map. Yes, no, maybe so. Hey, all right. Technology is horrible. All right. Two brothers. Simeon actually gets a chunk of land in the land of Judah. The truth is, it's really still Judah's land. There's no really formal allotment. They kind of give him extra because they got too much. And Levi is scattered, but you see, he doesn't have his own allotment anywhere. So you think about that, the consequences of sin, what God could have done. He doesn't scatter them into the world. He didn't say, get out of my land. He says, I'm going to scatter you across Canaan. And Levi, we know, becomes the Levitical priesthood. Levi becomes the tribe that mediates the relationship between God and His people. But they were the sinful ones. And what you see in that is God is glorified even by the sin of leaders and sometimes it's by example but other times it's employed as a ministry and we see that Levi becomes a blessing and even though he did something evil even though it was horrible and worthy of condemnation God means it for good and he uses it for good and ends up making it one of the most important tribes to all of Israel. They don't get a portion, but they end up being a blessing. Failure to lead always results in the glory of God one way or another. And it's either going to be an example or it's either going to be a ministry. Now, let's see if we can get this back to... There we go. We're moving on. We get to Judah. And Judah is a little bit different. Judah represents those who lead in their failure to the glory of God as opposed to those who fail to lead to the glory of God. You can imagine what Judah's thinking. He hears his three brothers get pounded on. Yep, you don't get this. You don't get this. You're evil. I don't want to be near you. And then Judah's like, I'm next. What's dad going to say? And Judah's no saint. Judah's got a very colored past. Judah's in the same category with these guys. Judah was the guy who slept with his daughter-in-law and then lied about it and all these horrible things happened. Judah was the one who instigated sending Joseph into slavery. He was the one that came up with the idea. hey, we could make money off this. Let's not kill him. Let's sell him into slavery. That was Judah. Judah's, by all earthly measure, not qualified to lead. Practically, he's the fourth son, so he's not the firstborn, but he's an unfaithful son. He is not the biggest. He is not the smartest. He's not the best looking. The only thing that he has going for him is that God has called him to lead. Judah's descendants, according to Jacob's prophecy, will be the royal line. We speak often about Judah. The royal line is the kingly line. The line from which the Messiah will ultimately come. Jacob says, In time your brothers are going to praise Him. His enemies are all going to fall before Him. All Israel will acknowledge Him as king. And from Him came great kings, and David and Solomon, until the one true king came, who was Jesus called the Lion of Judah in Revelation chapter 5. He will be made to prosper, that is Judah, not because he is gifted in leading, not because he has deserved it or earned it because he is so faithful, because God has made him prosper is the reason. His position will be the greatest, not because he's actually great, but because God has said so. His portion in the land will be the largest, not because he somehow is greater than, in terms of earning something than others, but because God has said so. He doesn't deserve to lead. He failed, but God has chosen him to rule. And I would argue that some of the best leaders are those who lead with a limp. Some of the best leaders are those who know the brokenness. One thing we did see about Judah as he came to the end of the whole story that Joseph was telling and trying to his brothers and trying to, to hide himself from them, when they wanted to keep another brother back, namely Benjamin, Judah was the one that stood up and said, "I will put myself in his place." And we saw a shift in him. We want to presume we know who's qualified to lead. I could tell you who's a leader and who's not a leader, but God's word teaches differently, and those who we think are qualified or disqualified are often uh, worst often wrong about that. God does not call the perfect or the preferred. He calls those who are going to best lead others in praise of him. And in fact, that's what Judah's name means, to praise God. Remember, he was the fourth son of Leah. Every son she had, she's like, oh, Reuben, now my, my husband's going to love me. Oh, Levi, now my husband's not going to hate me, blah, 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 right? And then she gets to Judah, like, forget it, praise God. All right? That's Judah. So maybe it makes sense that he is the one that's going to bring glory to God, though he's a screw-up. And he made mistakes. But again, sometimes those make the best leaders. Zebulun. Zebulun's an interesting guy. He is the only one who has a blessing attached to an area. And if you look at the map, which we'll see if it comes up again, and it does not because it's evil and, in, and demonically possessed, but whatever. You will see that Zebulun is a, a very small piece of land. Oh, there we go. It works. Um, and interesting, it says, and you got to read carefully, right? They shall dwell at the shore of the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I know what sea looks like, and Zebulun ain't near it, right? There's the Mediterranean, there's the Sea of Galilee, and Zebulun's right in the middle with land, he's landlocked. So you're like, what? And so it certainly can be translated toward the shore, it doesn't have to be actually on the shore, but it does indicate this kind of strategic position that Zebulun will be. He is positioned between two bodies of water, but also in between all these other tribes. And he is positioned in such a way as a great opportunity for trade. He will be economically wealthy in many ways. And it's an opportunity that's afforded by God. Zebulun didn't choose to be there. That's interesting. Read the end of Joshua. God is the one that gives the boundaries And it's like, oh, you uh, get the tree here, down to the river here, and you get the three rocks in a pile over there. Like, that's where you're at. And so you get this picture. So exactly what Zebulun gets is what Zebulun was supposed to get and is an incredibly uh, opportune place to live. According to Acts 17.26, as Paul's speaking to some Greeks, he says all boundaries and all places and all times were allotted by God. He gives us exactly what we're supposed to get and he withholds what we're not supposed to get. These are the people that we might argue just were born in the right place at the right time. Right? They're born of the right family. I was watching the NFL draft. You're like, dude, I would love to have been born like six foot five. Like, come on. Right? How did that dude become so good looking? How was he so strong? Like, he was just... There are people like that. They're like... Man, you just got it right. Why? Because God said, I'm giving you this. And we get bugged by that. Play the compare game a little bit. But think about this really ironic thing. Zebulun is one of the smallest tribes. So maybe the message for us is to go like, you know, greatness doesn't necessarily mean bigness. And maybe this is less about the perfect position Zebulun gets, but the blessing that Zebulun gets who enjoyed the place he was given. The small place, the small piece that we would look and say, not so great. And you know what? It's amazing as you look at the family of God and the people of God and the Zebuluns among us who make so much out of so little. Who would I just appreciate the people that they may not have a lot, but man, they seem like they take that little they have and they make the most of it. And it is fruitful and it's a blessing. Blessed smallness is an incredible way to magnify the glory of God. Then we got Issachar, and Issachar is very opposite. You got those who enjoy their place to the glory of God, and then you got those who rob glory from God because they waste their place. This is Issachar. He's pretty small, right next to Zebulun. Jacob says he's a strong donkey. And that doesn't mean like he's, you know, yeah you know, you're a donkey. Not like that. Strong donkey. It's a good thing. It's not a pejorative. He has all the character necessary for greatness. He's a workhorse. He is capable. He is competent. And yet, for some reason, his opportunities and his abilities are Wasted. Like Zebulun, he has every opportunity to prosper, but as the years unfold, you'll see that he fails to take advantage of all that God has given him. He will relax, and he'll waste the glory of his blessing. He is a strong donkey, but he's a strong donkey who crouches between sheepfolds. That seems like a strange statement. Sheepfolds are like sheep pens. And there's a space between those pens. And as one commentator said, you know what they put between those pens? Sheep poo. He said, he's a strong donkey who lays down between sheepfolds. That doesn't sound good. That sounds really lazy. Essentially, this tribe had no ambition. This tribe had no drive. This tribe had no Desire to work hard, but just to enjoy whatever they got and waste the opportunities that they had. They were very strong, but they're very passive. They would rather sit back and do nothing. And what that ends up resulting in is giving up their freedom for slavery. Because that was easier than actually doing what they could have. They're still part of the family, but they waste their role in it and rob God of the glory that could then you got Asher. Oh, no, Gad. Gad. I love Gad. Anyone name their kid Gad? Any Gad? Any Gad? No Gads. I'm naming my dog Gad. If I get a Gad, well, if I get a Gad, if I get a dog, Gad is just awesome. But you don't hear about Gad. Like, oh man, Gad. Like, you hear nothing about Gad. He gets one verse, right? Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Then moves on to Asher. Gad's like nothing, it seems, other than he's going to get pounded on. Gad is the one whose name meets Happy, and yet he is going to be inflicted by raiders over and over and over again. Why? Well, if we go back to my map, that's not the map. There you go. You see where Gad is positioned? Okay, so all the raiders are coming from the east. Who's going to get hit first? dad over and over again boom 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 hit struggle fight difficulty all the time says raiders are going to come also but you are going to be raiding as well or raid at the heels of those who raid you And what does that tell you these are the one who are constantly fighting but never quite overwhelmed These are the ones in the family of God who for whatever reason, their calling before God and their circumstances are those that are just difficult. And you might want to put yourself in that position, but I hesitate to do that. But there are those who struggle constantly, batter after battle, difficulty after difficulty, never have enough money, never have enough time, never have enough rest, never have enough ability, never ever have a cease from a fight. It's just a struggle but they never, ever give up. And the gads among us are such an encouragement. On Friday, I got a knock on my door. I'm a member of our church who's um, close to our family. And she was in tears. Just in tears. And she has a... I don't want to give it away... She has a real struggle in her family, has had it for years, particularly the child. And it's um, she just wanted to talk because she's tired. And she just wanted to have someone to pray with. So we sat on our porch and we cried and we prayed with her. And I was so encouraged. Because she's still fighting to the glory of God. And it's not a struggle that's going to go away tomorrow it's not going to go away for years. She's a gad. And even though she's getting hit over and over and over and over and over and over over again, you know what she's doing? She's hitting back. And she's not giving up. She's falling down. She's getting up. And I was blessed by weeping with her as she said, I'm tired. We need the gads. We need the gads. And they're part of God's family. You also have what I'll call the Ashers. And the Ashers are a little bit different than the Gads. Um, these are the ones who, who bring glory to God by serving, we'll call it. And I say serving because um, it's a little bit different. you look at Asher, it says, the food shall be rich. Okay, so they're like foodies. So if you're foodie, you like Asher, okay? They got food, they got lots of food, they're chefs, they're whatever, they're able to um, you know, cook really well, who knows, but the reality is they're going to prepare delicacies for someone that is not them. It says they're going to prepare royal delicacies. These are the people I believe that have more than enough. They, they prosper in all that they do, life is fruitful, but what they do with that richness is a blessing to others. Perhaps they have more money, perhaps they have more health, perhaps they have more time. But in their moreness, which isn't a word, but I'll use it anyway, they create kingdom delicacies. And they bless the kingdom and they work for the kingdom. They are servants whose abundance of time and talent and treasure is given for the glory of God. That's what Asher does. Your role is going to be to serve the king. Your role is going to be to bless the king. Your role is going to be to do what you do for the king. Love the Asher's. And then there are those who bring glory to God not by fighting or serving, but by speaking. And by speaking, this is where we're talking about Naphtali in verse 21. It says, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears fruitful, or sorry, it bears beautiful fawns, which seems kind of weird. But let me try and explain it a little bit. What you have is does giving birth to fawns, right? So does giving birth to fawns. You got does giving baby, reproducing. And if you look in most translations, we'll have this note. It's the idea of producing beautiful words, not just beautiful fawns from Naphtali, I believe, are are those that came that that really proclaimed the good news. The speakers that glorify God. Whether it be on a one-on-one conversation, whether it be a teacher, or a preacher, or an evangelist. Those who talk about the good news of the Gospel all the time. I hear stories about Aaron Ortiz and stories about Marin, my sister in law, stories about, yeah, I just led this person to Christ at the skate park. And like, who, how does that happen all the time with you? You guys are weird, but awesome, right? There are those people where, where it just, it, they speak, they speak, and they speak, and it's beautiful because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, and it just reproduces, and like a doe, the message springs forth and it produces fawns that are made in the same image and then they grow and and then they produce their own with their own message. Naphtali was the place where Jesus first preached. In the area of Galilee where the Word of God came to life and came out of literally. So Naphtali is going to produce words that will spread across Israel and bless the world. And then you eventually have um, Joseph. And Joseph is the longest blessing. And Joseph is the one that we ultimately would not choose to be like um, should we have the opportunity. Joseph is the one who brings glory to God by suffering. This is not the first choice for us all. He is described in his blessing as fruitful Because God made him faithful. Despite being attacked and harassed and beat up over and over again, it says he had a steady bow the whole time. Like boom! 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 Hated by my family. Thrown to slavery by my brothers. Falsely accused. Thrown in prison. I don't care. And he never once surrendered and he never once unleashed recklessly. He was faithful. Blessing is... Ironically, less about Joseph and more about God. In the blessing, Jacob describes God as the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel, the God of your Father, the Almighty. See, there are different ways to glorify God. We can lead, we can teach, we can serve, we can speak, we can bless, we can give, but few of us want to glorify like Joseph through suffering. And as much as we see Joseph like he goes through and he, he rises to the right hand of the throne of Egypt. He has all kinds of blessings and power and prosperity and joy. But the path to get there as much as we would love to enjoy that is not one that we would choose. But that's okay. Because God sometimes chooses it for you. God is the one, as we'll see next week, that chose the path for Joseph. And many of our paths are the ones that are chosen for great suffering. And as much as it's difficult to believe, there is great prosperity and joy on the other end. But God is glorified by suffering within the body. And it is those who have experienced great loss. It is those who are experiencing great pain. It's those whose circumstances have just not yielded, whom I believe I get encouraged by the most, especially when they say, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Those are the faithful ones that bring glory to God because the bigness of their problems gets overwhelmed by the bigness of their God. And honestly, there are many times I have not suffered like many people have suffered in this church. But man, I love to hear them sing and I love to hear them proclaim And I am encouraged by what their faith, um, how it glorifies God. And I need that. The last one, um, really last two. This is an interesting one. These are the Benjamins. I don't mean Benjamins like, hey, Benjamins. I mean Ben, Benjamin. Benjamin is a really brief statement. And there's some Benjamins among us. There's Benjamins in every church. Benjamin's a ravenous wolf in the morning, devouring, evening, dividing. Now, if you know anything about Benjamin, Benjamin was like the green berets of Israel. Like, you had a problem calling SEAL Team Benjamin, and they would like take care of it. Okay, they were tough warriors, powerful warriors, passionate warriors. They would defend God's people. The problem with Benjamin. Is the same thing that's a blessing about Benjamin. He's a ravenous wolf. Now, when you say wolf in the church, that has some negative connotations attached to it, right? But it's saying it positively here, or is it? Or is it both? From Benjamin came King Saul, and King Saul was a strong leader, powerful leader, and a horrible leader. He was both. Then, then consider another from the tribe of Benjamin, a man named Paul, who wrote 13 letters of the New Testament, who planted many churches and did many great things, dying beheaded for the glory of God. And yet before he did those things, he was a much different person. He was a murderer of Christians. And he was doing that because he believed he was giving God glory. He believed he was defending God's name. And I wonder sometimes if Benjamin is there to warn us to not be or to be careful about how passionately we defend God. For inadvertently, at times, we end up preying upon the very sheep we're trying to defend. You get so passionate about, oh, this is right, this is biblical, this is this which is a good thing. You want those people to be passionate. You want the Benjamins among you to defend what's right and defend what's biblical until you are using what's right and what's biblical to hurt the very people you're trying to help. That's what happened with Benjamin. And you have to be careful. But I'll conclude with with this. The lesson that we get from this passage is not about, okay, so who am I? Who am I in the tribe, right? Right? There's not like a spiritual gifts test where you say, Here's your Israel test. Who are you? Oh, I'm Asher. Like, no, that's not what we're talking about. The reality is, you don't often know how you're going to bring glory to God until you're reflecting upon what has happened. Some of us are going to bring glory to God through our failure, and some are going to bring glory to God through leading in that failure. Some are going to bring glory to God through our actions or our words. Some through our suffering and our passion. Some through our giving and our service. But I would argue that the best way to glorify God is actually through our dependence. And being in a family is probably the best place to learn that. Why do I say that? Well, if you look at verse 16, I skipped this one. This was Dan. Dan. Again, a name you don't often talk about. It says, Dan shall judge his people. These are the verses I'm most struck by. And I'm most struck by these verses because I believe this talks about those who fall away from the glory of God. And those who walk away from God's people. And by that I mean the faith. I've got a list of people who have done that in the history of our church, in the history of my ministry those who I served hand in hand with, those who I loved and cared for, and those who loved and cared for me, and yet they walked away. And it's heartbreaking. And perhaps you know people like that, and you remember, and it's just, it's heartbreaking. But in his prediction about Dan, Jacob says, well, you're going to judge his people, and it's it's an idea of vindication, meaning Dan is going to be the one who is supposed to fight for his people, but then Jacob says, well, you're going to be a serpent and a viper. And scholars argue, like, is this positive? Is this negative? Like, are you a serpent, like, biting the heels of bad horses? And they're like, is that good? Like, what is it? I actually think it's, it's bad. And why do I think that? Because you look historically and you say, Dan was a really troublesome tribe. Dan was the one who introduced idolatry into Israel. Dan was the one who set up golden calves in their land. Dan was the one who became like the center of false worship in Israel. And Dan is the only tribe, for some reason, that is excluded from the list of tribes in the book of Revelation. It seems as if Dan was called to be a, a part of the family and, and called to fulfill a certain role in the family, and he failed in doing that so you get to verse 18, and this is what strikes me. Because we can't forget this is a dad who has been God's chosen leader for a while. And he's reflecting. He's just talked about all the sin that his sons have done. Talked about the great things he can do. And then he talks about Dan, and he basically predicts his downfall. And I can just imagine him because just to give you a little insight into my own heart as a pastor or a dad, when those times you, look, you kind of step back and you look at the family and you see all these great things and you see just like these difficult things and, and Dan is kind of the final domino on that of like, uh, you're just get, you're like, you're just gonna end up not even in the people. And him, like when he cried out for his wife, remember that when he's talking to Joseph and he's like, man, I just loved your mom. It's like the same kind of thing where he just he goes, Man, Lord, is this the way it's going to be? Can't, can't it be any other way? Can't it be better? It's got to be a better way. Maybe it's sooner, maybe just different. But we know as you look back that every, every character flaw and every circumstance and every aspect of who these guys were, all the ugliness and the goodness of it, All came about to bring about Jesus and the story of redemption was fulfilled. And so I believe, as Jacob, I think, lives out, that the best way for us to glorify God is to cry out for and hope in Jesus. And I think that's what he does. In verse 18, after condemning Dan, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's just kind of like outside of the blessing. It's like a little commentary like, I just wait for your salvation, O Lord. It's that moment where you feel desperate and the moment you just cry out. And the reality is, this is the first time the word salvation is used in the Bible. The word Yeshua. Yeshua. Right? Right? And I know he's not crying out for Jesus, but he is crying out for the Savior that will come. And it's in that most difficult moment where you reflect on, man, my kids are messed up. The church is messed up, my life is messed up. Is, really, is this really how it's going to go, Lord? And it's that moment where you just kind of you're forced to cry because you have no other answers. And you just go, "Oh Jesus." I'm just going to hope in you. It's hard to get to that point though, huh? Maybe admit you're at that point where you just say, help me Jesus because it, it doesn't make sense to me. And you just go, man, I wish Jesus would come back right now, right? You had those moments? And I think that's what he's doing. He looks at his son, he's like, that is jacked up. Looks at his other sons, that's messed up. Oh, that's great. And he just says, Jesus. And that's here's a news flash. That's why we're here. We don't come here to go, let's sing songs and pretend we got it all together. That's just not the way it works. We sing songs and admit we don't have it together. News flash. If you have it all together and you got it all figured out, Jesus don't got squat for you. He really doesn't. Because Jesus came to save sinners, the people that didn't have it figured out, the people who are desperate for rescue. The people look at themselves and look at their lives and they go, I, 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 can't, I can't fix this. I need Jesus. And so I'm here to admit that I need Jesus. I pray that you'll admit you need Jesus. And together we sing songs to say, Yeah, we need Jesus. I think the most glorifying thing we can do is not figure out where we fit in the role, but really just to go, We all just need to be desperate for Jesus, period. That's the most glorified spot we can be. And if you're struggling and fighting or suffering, and if I know that or you know that I am, and I just say, I'm just desperate for Jesus, that's the best encouragement you can give. This is the table where we all admit that. The table where we come up and we say, yep, I don't got it figured out, but Jesus does. We're coming to admit that I'm screwed up, but Jesus is not. We come and say that, man, there's not a lot of hope in right now, but I'm going to hope in Him who's coming back, who promised to save me. I pray you will do that. I pray that you will sing with us as well. Give your hearts, give of all that you have, your time, your talent, your treasure for the glory of God until He comes back or we go back to Him. Let's pray.